0: (laughs) calls with kira stories from the art world is brought to you by the kira art team recorded during an unprecedented year and as a celebration of our community. We are fortunate enough to know and work with some of the best in the art sector, and we are delighted to be sharing their fascinating and inspiring stories with you throughout this series. We hope you enjoy learning more about the wonderful world we work in. Please forgive us for the sound quality. These interviews were recorded at home while in lockdown. Helen Armand jones studied art history at Manchester University before pursuing a career in commercial marketing, including managing art sponsorship for Hiscox Insurance, where she worked with the Whitechapel and Serpentine Galleries. She then went on to develop her knowledge and expertise at Sotheby's and in galleries in London and Surrey. She founded her business, The Art Buyer, with the aim of banishing blank walls and filling our homes with beautiful art. Helen and I met whilst taking a course together at Sotheby's Institute. This podcast episode was recorded in Surrey and London. Okay, so um, when did your interest in art begin, if you can remember? And
1: I was thinking about it, it's an easy one for me in some ways. In that I've, I've always loved art. Um, and when I was, well, from day dot, my parents always took me around galleries and museums wherever we were. So I remember, well, the lovely trips up to London with my mum and she she was a teacher actually not of art she was a math teacher but she was a sort of board teacher if you see what i mean yeah and she's like kind of had a natural knack for bringing these things to life So um, we went around the um victorian albert museum and to get me to sort of be interested in it i think she got me counting all the roof bits on the kind of statues and the busts and the sculptures and the V&A. And obviously that was just absolutely hilarious when I was tiny, but yeah. I find that I do the same thing with my own children now, and I think it's a way of bringing, you know, something very, very old and seemingly nice, to life in the eyes of a sort of six, seven or eight-year-old. Yeah. Um, and I think we always had art in our home, even if it was just sort of – I think we had things like prints and posters from Bosco and Hockney, just all around the place. Yeah. So I sort of grew up with it. We also had some quirky ornaments. My dad used to work in TV, so we used to get funny things. we have got like a light that you could touch and it would come to life by touching the leaves um, and it would come on and <laughs> just quirky things like that. And he used to collect, I um, think they're called automatons. Oh, yeah, yeah, automatons, automatons yeah. So, yeah, sadly, he's no on with us, but I've inherited some of those. We had a very quirky sense of humour. So there were just curious things around the house and posters and bits of art here and there. And then I'm thinking the other thing that really inspired me when I was little, which I hadn't really realised, was I had a picture on my bedroom wall, Mm. a kind of really cheesy 1970s picture. I think my parents got it in Ibiza, probably on a holiday. And... um, I used to go to bed and sort of dream about it, almost having an hour present, kind of dreaming that I was on one side or the other, it had slightly coloured hills, and I sort of, in my dreams, disappear into the painting. So I sort of tried to do the same with my own children, actually, kind of making sure they've got really interesting things in their bedrooms and on their
0: walls. Oh, that's lovely. It was there
1: right from the beginning. That's lovely. Well, I did then go on. When I was given a choice, I had quite a formal, sort of slightly stuffy education, and... um, while I wasn't particularly good at art myself, they, they did introduce history of art as an A-level option and we were the second ever year that we're allowed to do it. Yeah. So that was kind of the making of it for me, was that I was allowed to do it. And, you know, slightly shamefully, back then it was seen as a sort of slightly wafty, fluffy subject. Yeah. Which, when I think back, I just think it's appalling. Um, but luckily I, I was allowed to take it anyway and that was the beginning of it all for me. You know, still books right from the beginning of the renaissance and yeah i then went on to study as part of my degree at uni um where i kind of covered the surrealists and so on so i sort of went into it that way yeah so there was that aspect as
0: well um oh i was just thinking of something when you were talking then um yeah i feel like i was really fortunate as well with my school because um since there was a there was a headmaster there in the 60s that made it compulsory for all students to study history of art at a level the for at least for their first year and so they carried it on which I feel like was really I mean it was just a kind of normal school in this little village in the middle of Sussex it wasn't like Mm. (laughs) um so I feel like I was really lucky in that in that respect as well
1: um, you were, we were, best, there was only five of us in my yeah. entire year that did it. Yeah. We had this wonderfully charismatic old man, Mr. Charnock. He probably wasn't old, but when you were young, you yeah. <laughs> old. And he was just, he was such a character that he brought it to life. And I just remember being in this dark room and the five of us sort of kind of wondering what on earth we were doing in there because it was so refreshing and such yeah. a break away from this incredibly formal atmosphere and I yeah. think that was the thing with me sort of finding my thing in a way I felt like it was a bit late but I, you know, there's not such a as to related there. But yeah, I'm very, very grateful that I got to do that.
0: Yeah. And we
1: were lucky enough that I went, I but I went to and like, you know, I've got to go and see these things myself which is it's incredibly fortunate and I hope I'll be able to do the same with my own children
0: when the time comes. Yeah, I'm sure you will. We'll talk more a bit about kind of what led you to your your current business but could you start by just telling us about the business that you've recently started called the art buyer
1: yes so the art buyer i've had to launch it in lockdown which obviously has put some new challenges but the concept behind the art buyer is all about making art more accessible and a kind of friendly easy access way into art and whether that's kind of experiencing it by getting uh, visiting artists, going to artist studios, or having a sort of access to a bit of a guide, like an art buddy, if you like, to go around fairs or exhibitions with, um, or doing, you know, purchasing art. So we, we've kind of created a selection of 10 contemporary artists that are on the gallery now. Yeah. So the, the plan outside of plan is that we will also be accessible face to face. So we have um, a residency planned in a a nice gallery in Putney and we're also booked in to go to a couple of the the art fairs that are coming up and hopefully they go ahead. But essentially it's a sort of curated, if you like, digestible bite-sized focus on some really interesting and accessible
0: contemporary artists in the UK and Ireland. And could you just tell us about um, the kind of slogan that you have and why you chose that?
1: Yeah, so we 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 have a slogan that's no more blank walls, and this sort of came about from really me going around lots of people's houses, local friends, you know, in workplaces because I previously was a, a marketing consultant, was going into lots of offices, huge beautiful offices and tiny offices, and just seeing shamefully blank walls um, and just kind of just thinking. Because my biggest frustration in my house is I do not have any blank walls, um, and yeah. I don't have anywhere to put stuff, so I kind of saw an opportunity, but it was also driven by my passion um I started asking questions and I realized that there is a there's a sort of gap i think between what is perceived to be the art world, if you like, with a capital T yeah. um and people who have perhaps only got pieces that they've bought either as an afterthought in Ikea, for example. and not that there was anything wrong with this, but sort of this is what I was finding as I was chatting to people. And yeah. um, Possibly the odd small piece that was bought on a holiday in Cornwall or Spain, for example, but the ones like that. But when I would ask people about their art and where they buy it from, as I started to get interested, a lot of what came up was just a lack of, understanding a lack of knowledge about where to go an interest and yeah. then perhaps a lack of a sort of not confidence isn't quite the right word, word but what came out was this perception of it's us and then you know the art world is a thing that yeah. isn't accessible to everyday people with not huge budgets but you know money to spend and yeah. interest and that just fascinated me and I ended up working in my local art gallery and that sort of furthered my knowledge about the behaviour of people as they walk in, you know, how they interact. And I definitely felt there was something in this current model that is slightly daunting, I think, and a little bit off-putting. You know, this sort of rarefied white boxes home, which I yeah. absolutely love, personally. But but to your average person who's perhaps just popped out to do some shopping or is is doing up a, you know, their living room, for example, I think it is a bit daunting, actually. This is what came out time and time definitely. again. Definitely. Yeah, that's where it was born. Well, I personally have become a big believer in how art is intrinsically linked with your home, your life, your memories, and the DNA I think, of the family. So it's something that lives, you know, outlives humans, and I've found that to be quite profound. Actually, after you know, I lost my father. And, you know, my sister and I had to pack up his house and we sort of went through all of his art and while it was obviously upsetting, it's also such an incredible thing
0: yeah. that
1: we're able to have these pieces on our walls that we associate really strongly with visual memories of being in his house
0: yeah.
1: and it means we can talk to our children about it and, you know, typically I'm now buying things and thinking about passing them down to my children. It's yeah. Quite an emotional thing to me and I think, I see it as an opportunity. I think art should be linked to feelings. Definitely. I think the interesting opportunity for me, because my background in marketing, I suppose I see these things as gaps and opportunities, but really what I'm saying is I wish that more people felt they could easily access what is perceived to be a world they don't belong to. I just think that's nonsense and I love the concept of people just popping into their local art gallery on a Saturday and feeling fine about not buying anything. Um, but perhaps on going home and looking up an artist they discovered. I love art fairs for that same reason that, you know, they might not feel they have to buy something there, but they might fall in love with an artist following them and later in life collect something. Yeah. That's the part that excites and interests me. I think it's hugely beneficial to the artists to be obviously found and discovered and followed. And, you know, I think there shouldn't be
0: any blank walls. Uh, but <laughs> so that's, also, that's coming together. But also, kind of collecting for the pure, reason that you are attracted to something and something you're drawn to something Um and like you say a particular work of art evokes memories and emotions in you rather than it being kind of I mean I do believe that people should make informed decisions like you say research the artist things mm-hmm. like that but there is so mm-hmm. much to say for that actual kind of emotional connection to a work and that being enough to kind of
1: I agree entirely. I think if you, if I was asked, you know, what would be the one driving factor in choosing a piece, personally for me, it would be, do, do you love it? Do you, yeah. just, just simply that, do you love it? Does it, does it do something to you? You'll be able to look at it endlessly. Yeah. Uh, um, but actually, I do get asked now, you know, um, do you think it'll go up in value? And I do get people sort of asking for advice on, will it go with the rest of my collection? And I think, I do enjoy the aspect, of the, there's an interior aspect to buying art, and mm-hmm. I think it can be perhaps a little bit frowned upon, but actually people genuinely do need to see it, the piece they love belongs in their home, whether that's from a looks perspective or just a fit and feel perspective. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I enjoy that aspect of giving advice, or certainly at least my opinion. Um, yeah. Not, uh, you know, not digging it up into anything beyond that, really, this is, this is an opinion. But hence, linking with you know organisations such as yours to kind of give that slightly deeper level of expert knowledge, I think, is a perfect fit. Because I I just want to link people up with the advice they need. I'm happy to be asked my own opinion and I present my own curated view of the contemporary art world. But essentially, I just want people to sort of I just want to
0: demystify it and to get more people enjoying art. Definitely. Definitely. And if I do slightly feel like people, things are changing. Um, yeah,
1: I, I think so, especially with all the, you know, the, the, the rise of digital, I think is doing a huge amount for that, and probably particularly Instagram.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and um, so you've spoken very briefly about your kind of previous career. I just wondered if you could hmm. expand on that and what led you to where you are now?
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. So after I finished At university, I studied English Week History of Art. Um, And then I sort of did, I think, what a lot of people did and just didn't know what I wanted to do or be. I hate that question, what do you want to be? Um, And I sort of fell, if you like, into a creative marketing career, commercial marketing, brand marketing, which I absolutely love. And it took me on a brilliant journey. And I was thinking about, you know, the things I've done and the people I've met. I've worked in the music industry side of things and met, you know, Lash and Jimmy Page and I've worked in magazine publishing, or kind of rock magazines and film magazines and I've worked for TK Maxx, um, the national retailer and led some big campaigns and then I worked for TK and helped work on Race for Life which I'm really proud of and gosh I mean it's been, it's been a heck of a journey and what's led it all kind of in one direction is just my passion. Yeah. To be honest I felt as long as I cared and felt something about it, then it was then it was the right thing to do. And actually, I got to a point about, gosh, four, four-ish years ago, and I suddenly found I wasn't enjoying what I was doing as much. And I had, you know, I had very young children. And um, it is very, very hard trying to keep a job down and a career going with young children. Yeah. Um, and I was in a particular job where I was trying to manage a big team and be a head of marketing, and it was just, absolutely incredibly stressful and nothing was working and you know the classic all these things you read about women trying to keep their careers going and had a very male uh environment there the first time I've ever kind of been pushed to the point where I quit my job with nothing to go to which was utterly terrifying
0: yeah
1: and from there found my way into freelancing I found my way into the far more enjoyable and creative world um, and one of my first Job, I think that I took you know, a and choice that led me on the journey I think I'm on now is is I worked for Robert Hiscox of Hiscock's Insurance mm. on his sponsorship. Um, he's was, he's was a huge, huge, prolific art collector to the point where they've got um, you know a permanently employed curator in the offices. Yeah. and the offices were stunning, and I was privileged to be surrounded by incredible art. Um, and it took me because we were we were working on our art sponsorship. I worked with the Whitechapel Gallery and the Serpentine Gallery at Royal Academy Schools and the Royal Institution. And looking back, I think that's where the kind of the big change of direction probably started there. But it did take me a little bit longer. Um, I ended up working as a marketing consultant on my own business with some really, really small, sort of tiny startups and micro businesses. And it was just so inspiring. I I just found the passion and the drive in these people. And what I learned has led me to where I've got to because I was working hands-on with these, you know, decision-makers and learning how to build websites, figuring it all out from the ground up alongside these brave entrepreneurs. i just got the bug for it. But I didn't know, I knew there was something, and I was meant to be doing something else, but I couldn't quite figure it out. Yeah. And then I was doing a big contract. I did a big contract for the entertainer toy shop, and um, where I had a brilliant brief, which was helping design the toy shop of the future for children in the digital age. I mean, it was a phenomenal project, um, and I was working with augmented reality and virtual reality. And you know, who doesn't want to work for a toy shop? But at the end of that, it was you know, it was a lot of work. And once it was all launched, I actually broke my elbow, and it caused me to stop and have to stop work for six weeks, um, and that. Began the process of okay, hang on, what do I really enjoy? Yeah. What are my real pleasures in life? What's my passion? What could I be doing? And um, that was the beginning of a slow process where I worked out what do I actually love and how could I bring my work and love together? And yeah, about a year ago, Easter 2019, I sort of hit upon this thought process, having kind of linked all these observations together, and then went about getting a job in my local gallery. Just very part time, and then enrolled in a course at Sotheby's, where I met you. Yeah, and learned about the business side—the kind of the, the way I will never think—the kind of yeah, the sort of what, what would you call it—the business side of collecting, seeing art as an asset class, which yeah. I will never think like that. So I wanted to understand it and appreciate yeah the value in the, the secondary art market. Um, and then the final step, really, I sort of made a three-point plan for myself so to get some work experience, to go do a course. And then I set myself a challenge to work at the Affordable Art Fair because I've always gone along as a, a guest and I, I just love it. And I really wanted to work there. So I approached a really cool graphic um, art gallery, online art gallery in London. And through a long series of chats, ended up sort of co-hosting and co-funding a booth with them at the Affordable Art Fair I absolutely in loved I just loved the buzz of it
0: mm. and the people that I met um and from there the art buyer was born really um could you explain the the art that you advise on and that is it just contemporary artists and is there a reason for that yeah um quite simply it's the art that I think
1: that's being made now so it's all contemporary at the moment it's all in the UK and Ireland and it is they're all people that I have you know that I now know and that I have found on my travels and on my research and you know I've met through open studios or open houses or you know and I I wanted to I love what they're doing I like them people because that's important as well um and I want to showcase what they're doing. I think the work's beautiful, and it's also in a certain price bucket. You know, at the moment, everything that I feature currently is sort of under about the four and a half thousand pound mark, and yeah. it's all yeah contemporary art that's being made right now by, work by artists that are still working.
0: That's really interesting because there's a few people I've spoken to, and it's so important to them is that there is a person behind it, and there's a, a kind of connection to the the person making. Um, And I think that's hugely Mm. important to lots of people actually buying works. And I think that that will increase Mm. with everything that's going on. I think people will value handmade element of things and really things to treasure rather than um, the kind of disposable world that we've slowly been creating for ourselves, which I hope will not continue in the same vein. Mm. Yeah, I think that's where I sort of fell in love with this this journey and this purpose
1: I want to uh, kind of help other people access it that feeling of being in an artist's studio and talking to them whilst they sort of infuse a, with this just incredible um, passion and joy about what they do it's, it's a real privilege Yeah. Uh, what I would like to do is is bring more of that hence the kind of um, organising artist's studio visits and I produced a lovely film with one of our artists David Storey in Brighton um, who has an incredible story behind his work and how how he approaches it and where he gets his inspiration that so I think
0: you know it can only
1: enhance the art and the art buying process so I'd like to do more of that as yeah well.
0: so as a woman who's also started a business could you maybe explain what it's like being your own boss and um, what challenges you face and how you've overcome them mm, I think I sort of mentioned I started
1: uh, my own business, actually, in its first iteration as a marketing consultant, yeah. after sort of 17 years working in house, um, and I, I kind of have been lucky enough to learn a lot of the challenges that I faced along that journey, leading up to the one I'm on now. Yeah. Um, and I think that was for me learning where my gaps and weaknesses were, and kind of how I needed to plug them. Um, so I think it's a question of. In that case for me, it's been whether it's a skill I could learn or did I need to pay somebody to help me with it? For example, you know, accountancy, I can, I just can't do it, yeah. I need to pay somebody to help me with that, I always will. Um, and similarly, you know, I'm pretty handy with the digital side of things, but complex web development. I just do not have the patience, um, or the, kind of the brain they for it, so again, when it gets to that deeper level, um, I, I need to get that help in. But then equally, drawing along the way, some of my other gaps in knowledge that I can teach myself, some aspects of graphic design, for example, or photography, yeah. um, how can I plug those gaps Well, I can probably figure those out or teach myself or go on a course. But actually, I think the biggest challenges are just in my own head as a small business owner or as a, you know, whatever phrase you like, entrepreneur, solo owner, you know, person in business, but setting up on your own, I think you need a huge amount of um passion, focus and total belief and commitment in what you're doing. And the biggest challenge to that is always, I think, gonna be just yourself and your own kid. Everybody has updates and bad yeah. days. Everybody has the little grumbling in their head that's so well maybe you're bad at this, maybe no one will like it. Yeah. Um and I think that's that's just true, I think in all of life, at all stages of a career. Um, I think, you know, one of the best parts of that is, you know, having your cheerleaders. So got a lovely uh, kind of group of people on what that I'm having on water like my kind of just get their opinion or my husband's a brilliant cheerleader, yeah. you know, cheerleader for me he helps me you know, deliver the artworks and he helps me take photographs of the business so I think it's finding out your flaws and your weaknesses and your gaps and figuring out how to plug them but I think it's finding your cheerleaders as well yeah
0: you're um, going to support you along the way oh I love that um, and you said that you inherited um, some pieces, but do you consciously collect art yourself as well?
1: I do. I think it's taken me until recently to sort of realise that you could call what I have a collection. I think you and I spoke about this. Yeah. I think there's a gap between, oh, and no, I've just got bits and bobs on my walls, um, and saying I collect art or I am an art collector, which feels quite a statement. Yeah. Um But actually, yeah, I've, I've been buying art. I have been using my disposable cash to buy art for quite a long time and I think that's the thing isn't it is I've had that money and I've chosen to spend it on a piece of art rather than for example going out or buying a new dress or whatever yeah for quite a long time and so here yeah, I have I've got a really nice sort of mixed um collection I think I started out mostly with prints as I think a lot of people do um and then I started to get the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition every year with my late father and we turned it into this just brilliant day out where we'd end up kind of going to Fortnum for cocktails cocktail and having, a, having an absolute ball. Um, yeah. And so I still go every year So a lot of what I purchased was when I was with him. And I've inherited the pieces that he bought um, there, as has my sister. So I've got a lovely oil painting by a Scottish artist called Cedric Hewson, Um mm. And I'm also collecting one of the artists that I feature. I've got, um, two lovely works by David Story, who's a mm-hmm. Biden-based artist. Um, and I've got, yeah, I've got my eye on lots and lots of things, but I've got a beautiful print, um, by Sarah Lee as well, which I found through the Royal Academy of well, exhibition. Yeah. So yeah, it's a sort of, you know, slow, um, growing. I probably buy something interesting, you know, maybe once or twice a year.
0: Yeah.
1: As I'm able to. Uh, and actually part of the challenge of what I do now is trying not
0: to buy all the stuff that I'm big. <laughs> I can doing. imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. And then finally, and I wanted to ask you this, especially because you recently asked me the same question. And that's, <laughs> if you could own any work of art from any time period, irrespective of cost and location, what would it be?
1: I am torn between two, um, which I know is a bit Um And I'm going to say two, but so I'll, I'll force myself to choose one. So of the two I'm thinking of, I probably would go for Vermeer's, the milkmaid. Oh, um, wow, okay. I just, I just had another um from day dot when I first learned about it in my, I think it's my A-level. Yeah. Um, and oh, I don't have a picture or a postcard or anything of it. I can just picture it immediately in my head now as we talk about it. I always yeah. have been able to. Um, just, I just I think I've got, a am drawn to the beauty of the everyday, like the mundane and that little glimpse, like we're looking in on somebody. And it just feels so contemporary, like we've just walked in and found this lovely lady, this Dutch lady, pouring the milk out. Um, but the other piece that I'm always told, uh, that I was totally thinking about, was the Hockney piece of My Parents. It's just the simple, loveliness of it, this little study of his mum and dad. And just beautifully simple composition and colours and I just think it's the epitome of sort of quiet, understated love in a painting, you just there's this and familiarity sort of I don't know if something huge, beautiful and happy and sad all at the same time because they're all preparing. I
0: probably read into it as
1: with the best style, you know, in our story, don't we? Definitely. So choice between the two, but I think I'd probably go for the veneer.
0: Okay. Nice choice. Um, Well, thank you, Helen, so much. That was really interesting to to hear your story. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at curaart.com and see you next week for another call with Cura.